God's people say, Amen. Glory to His name. And I could just stand here for the next 30 minutes and talk to you about this week. And the word glory just keeps coming up over and over again. And uh, it's just remarkable. Have you ever had that to happen? You know, like when you have a Sunday school class and the sermon, it just seems to fall right in line and you didn't plan it. That's the way my whole weekend has been. And it's all centered upon the glory of God. It's amazing to me. Now, I did what you good Christian Southern Baptists do not do who are in Sunday school. I waited until late uh, to study my Sunday school lesson. And so, and, 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 and if you still don't believe that, uh, how, how this is going to line up this morning, uh, you know that we've been preaching through the book of James, right? So that was... God planned that from eternity past, and so we've been walking through, and today we are just now coming to chapter 2, verse 1. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to James chapter 2, and beginning in verse 1, and we're going to just stay in verse 1, that's all we're going to get to, and you'll see why here in a moment. I kept wrestling with the Lord over this text, because as you as you look at a text and you try to you try to say, okay, where is a good spot to break this off into a good sermon block? You know, so that you're not trying to take uh, too much and uh, and try to unpack that. That can be difficult in 30 minutes or whatever. And as I began to look at it, the text seemed to just keep rolling on all the way down to verse 13. And I thought, now we're going to celebrate communion together. And so we got to have that in there. And uh, we need to exposit this text properly and give it its proper due. And yet... Uh, we're not going to have time for that in one sermon. And so that was kind of the lingering thought that I had approaching this week's message. And then the Lord seemed to just be saying, you're not going to take all 13 verses. And I didn't know how that would look or how that would unfold. But then the Lord gave me this phrase. You found it by now, my brethren. Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory with respect of persons. And that, that phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, just stuck out. Now, if you'd been at our men's breakfast before I was really settled on this, so this shows you I'm like Spurgeon on Saturday night with sermon preparation I shared with them something that the Lord had laid on my heart Saturday night to to share with them in our men's breakfast devotion. And it was about the glory of God in Christ. And so just over and over this weekend, the Lord has just been impressing upon me. Let's celebrate the glory of God in Christ. Let's do that today. One of the things that I like to do is to hold up something as we go to the Lord's table together that we can celebrate that was purchased and secured for us on the cross of Calvary. And certainly we know that every good gift and every perfect gift, as James has said already, comes down from God. And it was purchased and secured for us on the cross of Calvary. Jesus bought it. Our blessings that we enjoy as Christians were our purchased blessings. And so we can hold them up as we go to the table and make that a time of worship and a time of rejoicing in the good gifts and ultimately in the giver himself that has given us all things freely in Christ. So let us 
not have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to person. Let's pray. Father, we know and realize this morning that we are inadequate to speak about your glory. How can the fallen creature begin to take upon his lips such a task, such a subject? And yet it is one, if not the chiefest subject in your word. That you have sought to express your character, your nature, your person to us in creation and redemption. And all of that is an expression of your glory. And so, Father, would you help us this morning as limited, finite creatures to catch a glimpse of your great glory and majesty in Christ. So that in seeing we may savor and in savoring we may spread that glory among all the nations of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The word glory in scripture as I alluded to just a moment ago is one of the dominant themes within the word of God. As a matter of fact, if you ask the the pointed question, why do we exist The Bible would give us back a resounding, you exist for the glory of God. You exist to know God and enjoy Him. And in enjoying Him, you you glorify His power and His wisdom and creation and redemption. The Bible speaks of glory in the Scriptures as with words like splendor. We think of splendor and brightness and majesty and wisdom and, and the demonstration of God's power and the demonstration of God's attributes. And James, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, says to the church then and to us today that this glory is the most clearly seen in Christ. And so what I'm doing for you this morning is essentially what I would not normally do. Namely, the main point of the sermon is not going to be the main point of the text. Now that's what we normally want to do when we open our, our Bibles. We want to see what the text is saying. What is the main point and make that the main emphasis. But this morning I want to lift this phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, out of this text... And just hold it up before us today, biblically, so that we can worship and so that we can rejoice as we go to the Lord's table together. As you look out at the created world, you can see the glory of God everywhere if you just have eyes to see. You can see if you were to stand on the brink of the Grand Canyon and you will, your heart will swell with awe and wonder at that. You can look at a mountain or a great ocean. You can look at a little baby fresh from the mother's womb and you can see the glory of God in his created world. The Bible even says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 19, that the the heavens declare the glory of God. And it, it it is one of the chiefest things, I believe, that we should pray for. It drives our worship, and it drives our evangelism. (laughs) You come in here this morning, and 
you didn't get enough sleep last night and you're dragging last week and this week comings uh, problems and trials and difficulties into this service and you have a hard time worshiping God, just feeling that awe and wonder at His presence and trembling at His Word and it's because your little eyes need to be open to see the glimpses of God's glory in Christ. Because if you can see Him, all oh, you will not be the same. You will never be the same. It is one of the chiefest, it is one of the greatest prayers that we can pray. As a matter of fact, it's one of the prayers of Moses that he prayed, for example, in the book of Exodus chapter 33. You don't need to turn, you can jot this down if you like. In Exodus 33:18, Moses prayed simply this. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. In a sense, a very real sense, all Christian ministry is an attempt to help people see the glory of God in Christ. Changes everything. Preach like that. Pray like that. Sing like that. Love like that. So that someone can just see through your actions, through your attitudes, and through the words of your mouth, the glory of God in Christ. Help them be a means of God's grace to show them what their eyes need to see. But because of sin, cannot. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, once said about this, prayer of Moses in Exodus 33, he said, among the lofty peaks and summits of man's prayers that rise like mountains to the skies. Don't you wish you had the tongue of Spurgeon? This is the culminating point. This is the highest elevation that faith ever gained. It is the loftiest place to which the great ambition of faith could climb. Don't you love that? It is the topmost pillar of all the towering structures that confidence ever piled. <laughs> to take upon your lips in prayer to say to the infinite, almighty, all-wise God of creation, show me your glory. <laughs> As if our finite minds could handle such a feat. As if our eyes could behold the God of creation, the one who stepped out on the platform of nothing and spoke into existence everything that you see and everything that you cannot see. Who dwells, the New Testament writer says, in unapproachable light. And to ask him, God, show me your glory. Think you can get excited about that? Nothing drives my life. Nothing is at the core of my heart's desire than to see the glory of God in Christ and to help other people see it too. If you strip away everything that is me, I trust that by God's grace, that's what you'll find. 
One of the greatest pictures in Scripture that I love to go to, and this gives me another opportunity to do it, and you're all familiar with it, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Nothing thrills my heart more than to just read this, just listen to it. In your Sunday school lesson, if you were in the Gospel Project this morning, it talked about... When you think of theology and studying the Word of God and studying God Himself, is it dry to you? Is it boring to you? Does it seem like academic exercise to you? Well, you, you, you're, you're missing it. To study God is to take upon your mind the loftiest thoughts and the most glorious pictures. Just listen to what this, what this says. Isaiah 6, 1, in the year King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And you see these earthly monarchs sitting upon their thrones, and they're, they've got this great robe that's coming out around them and spreading out upon the platform around their throne. And here Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood these glorious angelic seraphims. Each had six wings. With two, the first two, what did they do? Covered their faces. (laughs) You see why Spurgeon says that the top of our prayers of faith would be to pray to see the glory of God because these angelic beings in the presence of God with two of their wings, the first two expressed in this list are used to cover their eyes, to shield them from the magnificent sight of the Lord God of hosts. With two, they covered their face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can you see that? If you have a glimpse of it, if you have a glimpse of it, It is a gracious gift. And so as I come back with you to the book of James, chapter 2, verse 1, and we think about this verse together, I began to look at this sentence, and I'm not a Greek scholar by no means, but as I began to look at this sentence and began to consult various commentaries concerning the verse, I very quickly discovered that the Greek phrases here in this verse are very difficult, as one commentator put it, to straightforwardly translate into English. Just parenthetically, I would just say what a difficult task it is to translate the Word of God. It's a marvelous task that has to be undertaken in every dialect around the world, and yet it is a monumentous task. That commentator goes on to say that the different translations must therefore make certain decisions in order to make sense of the verse at all. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is a common three-term combination that is found throughout the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's one of the most used uh, three-phrase combinations of the designation for our Lord. But nowhere else in Scripture will we find this glory added to the series in this way. It's unique to James in chapter 2, verse 1. I also discovered in my study that commentators attach typically to these phrases, these terms, these titles, they attach it to this Lord of glory phrase at least seven different ways. (laughs) And so when you go to study that, you think, ooh, this is going to be tough. What am I going to do with this? And I... I believe we can narrow it down very quickly to three of the most important ways. And in narrowing it down to three, let me just give you this up front. Narrowing it down to three doesn't mean that one of these three necessarily has to be true, although I believe one is more true than others textually. However, all three of them are theologically correct, and therefore it's one of the reasons sometimes that I think God leaves His Word ambiguous and mysterious so that we can bring, He can bring into it things biblically, historically, and throughout the Scriptures to bear upon a phrase or an idea or a concept in Scripture. I mean, maybe all three come to mind as James penned these words. The three ways in which they are applied is, first of all, as a title. As a title. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. He is the glorious one. You look up in the dictionary, the glorious one, and there is God expressed in Jesus Christ. He is the glorious one. There is none above him. There is none that can be, that can hold this title. If anyone holds the title, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, if anyone holds the title, Emmanuel, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone holds the title as the glorious one, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the glorious one. Capital G, capital O. He's the one who is the glorious one. Of course, we know that in the Old Testament, it's a common association of glory with God. For example, in in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 22, one of Eli's daughter-in-laws, after the Ark of the Covenant was captured in battle, and they came and told the news that she was giving birth to a son, that the, that the Ark of the Covenant, that, that representative Ark that represented the very throne of the Almighty God and the glory of Israel was captured. She says this statement, the glory has departed from Israel for the Ark of God has been captured. As we come over into the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, the Apostle Paul says this, speaking about Jesus. None of the rulers of this age understood this, that is the identity of Christ. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so here we see the phrase used again, but not in combination with the Lord Jesus Christ as such. The Apostle Peter picks up pen through the inspiration of the, of, of the Holy Spirit. And he describes the transfiguration and calls God, gives the title to the Father 
of the majestic glory, capital M, capital G. This is what he says in 2 Peter 1.17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so God has expressed himself in creation. God has expressed himself in Christ as the glorious one. Secondly, not only as a title, but also as an adjective. So when you, when you put this into English, how do you do it? Do you say the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one? Or do you say the glorious Lord Jesus Christ? You describe him as glorious. You use it as an adjective, as a descriptor of the character and, 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 and as a picture of what he is like. And that's the second way that we look at it here this morning. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ as an expression of God's presence. Jesus is glorious. And so here we find James attributing To the Lord Jesus Christ, the quality of splendor and majesty and beauty and power that is designated for God alone. Because although God has expressed his glory in creation, the clearest expression of God's glory is Jesus Christ. And that's remarkable. Give you another one of my favorite passages. I know I say that a lot. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ The King James says, is the express image of God. The express image of God. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ that God has expressed his character and his nature the clearest. See, if you go look at a tree and you say, that's a beautiful tree. I believe God made that tree. It does, in some sense, express the creativity and the beauty of And the meticulous nature of God's mind. But it doesn't give you the expression of the nature of God. The way the person of Jesus Christ does. You see it's on the cross of Calvary. As Jesus hung between the heavens and the earth. That God expressed the character of holiness. For God truly must be holy. If he would permissibly pour out his wrath upon his son. His son, God must be holy to do that. It is in that same picture of Jesus dying on the cross that we see the nature of the love of God the clearest. For truly God must be loving if he poured out his wrath on his son. That those who are in rebellion against him can have eternal life. Truly he must be. Loving in his nature, in his character. And so our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly and finally, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
as a designation, glory being the state or the realm where God dwells in which Christ reigns now in heaven and to which all Christians are destined to go. You hear it? The accent falling on the Lord of glory. This realm, this state of being like God in an imperishable, immortal body in this place called heaven. And a new earth, the glory, the glorious realm in which Christ has ascended and to which he now reigns and to from which he is coming at the end of history to rule and reign over and with his people. And to judge all nations. Let me just give you some scripture behind that. And we'll go to the table. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. He was taken up to glory. He has been exalted, the Bible says. Therefore God hath highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. He was taken up in the glory, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in the glory. (laughs) It's the place where he is gone to. And where he sits and from which he's coming. He was taken up in glory. He will return in glory. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's coming and when he returns, he will be coming in glory. He will return in glory and he will bring us who are in Christ into that glory. And we will be enveloped by that glory and we will reflect that glory with ever increasing joy throughout eternal ages. And thirdly and finally under this. Last one, he will bring Christians into glory. Now, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.14, To this he, God, called you through our gospel. What did he call us to? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you rejoice in that today? Let's pray. Father, as our deacons come and we begin uh, the process of changing gears now to partaking in this physical activity, this participation in the bread and the fruit of the vine, we want to commemorate right now, Lord, your death that purchased for us That eternal place of glory gave us a place and the privilege to be in that kingdom, in your kingdom, a part of your family. And to see you in your glory, to have eyes that can behold you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God and savor you and continually spread that glory among 
all peoples forevermore. God, thank you for the privileges we have purchased and secured on the cross. Help us now to be nourished by faith as we participate in this supper. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.